Well, sometimes the best plans are not to be. So after about a year and a half, I was there, the dot-com bubble burst. And I'm sure you remember that, 2000. You don't allow a gap of more than six months in your career, especially if you're an immigrant woman of color. Welcome to Humanizing Software, where we explore our ever-evolving relationship with technology and its impact on our professional and personal lives. Hear incredible stories and gain valuable insights from global industry leaders as we discuss their relationship with software and how it's developed over the course of their career. As technology continues to evolve and brings us closer together, it should enable people to do what they do best while we uncover what they do best with the help of technology. And now your host, Andrew Tall. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. And welcome to Humanizing Software, where the team at Tailwind Business Ventures has put together a compilation of fireside chats with a number of global leaders about their perspectives on this ever-important topic about humanizing software and making sure that we're keeping the people side of the equation right alongside when we're talking all things technology. It seems like every single day we are hearing about new changes relative to artificial intelligence and a variety of other different technologies and means and ways of which that people are getting removed from the equation. Well, today we're talking and we'll continue to talk about how to make sure that we're maintaining and keeping that not only available, but live and thriving. We invite you to please join in on the conversation today. Ask us questions afterwards on any one of the platforms on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And we invite you also to join our YouTube channel. So as we get started today, I wanted to provide an introduction to an individual that I've just recently had the opportunity to met. Jayla Dai is a multi-dimensional thought leader who has worked in academia, business, philanthropy, different areas, government and non-governmental or not NGOs, always seeking to improve the human condition. She has navigated careers both in the public and private sector using what is called multiple mental models, which we're going to dive into today. She is a noted biologist, an investor, a board director, a keynote and strategic advisor, and has served the administrations of not one, not two, but three different presidents and has worked in eight different countries with receiving numerous accolades and awards for her particular work on a number of different subjects. She's also been board chairman, board treasurer, board secretary, and board life director on a host of various different charities working to raise millions of dollars to assist in their efforts. Her unique differentiator on these boards is her foresight, which we'll also be talking about today. Currently, she is a partner at Aurora Equity and the founder and chair of Ag Food Tech at the Bond of Angels. So please join me in welcoming to our livecast today, Jayla. Good morning, and thank you so much for joining today. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Looking forward to our conversation. Fantastic, as am I. I know there's a number of things that I want to definitely ask, and we could probably have this conversation go on for hours and spend an hour each at least on each of the presidents, but we'll save that for the future. What we always like to start off with, with each one of our guests to give everybody an opportunity to understand a little bit more about you and your story is, tell us the Jayla story. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a long one, but I, I, I know we have limited time, so I'll make it as quick as I can. I've had a very zigzaggy up and down life story, but luckily most of the time, the trajectory has been in the right direction. It's been upward. So that's the lucky part. I grew up among nine siblings and nine cousins. So it was like a small zoo. 18, <laughs> 18 children is like a little zoo. That was in Iran. I'm Persian by birth and breathing. So that was how I grew up. Middle class, not wealthy, not poor, just, you know, regular normal life. And then I came to U.S. to go to graduate school. And on a pea soup, foggy night, I landed in San Francisco airport to go to UC Davis. So the rest is history, obviously. While I was doing my PhD, the revolution in Iran happened. My life trajectory totally changed for obvious reasons. So... I ended up being in, wanting to stay here. And in the process of trying to get myself wrapped up with my PhD and getting myself set up here, I was getting deportation notices. Not because I was illegal, not because I had done anything wrong. It was because of the hostage crisis. I don't know if you remember that. President Carter signed an, an executive order saying Iranians would be deported. And it was pretty blanket executive order. So my visa was to be renewed within a few weeks of that executive order. My student visa was not renewed. So I was deportable. And here I am, I have about six months, nine months to finishing my PhD. And I'm getting deportation notices in the mailbox every day. And so to make a story short, a long story short, for two years, it was the lawyers playing delaying games. And the university was fully behind me because I was doing pretty good research and they wanted to see that research finished and continued. Anyway. The day President Reagan was sworn into office, one of the first things he did was a pile of executive orders by President Carter. Every president does that. They resent the executive orders of the previous, especially if they're from the other party. So this was one of the executive orders that the president, President Reagan resented. And I was home free. So, and the university helped me get a green card and and so, so I'm here, a proud U.S. citizen, although I'm very proud of my heritage as a Persian, as an Iran. <clears throat> so that is not to say anything negative about my own. I love both sides. Uh, anyway, so once I was out of the deportation trauma, it was two years of trauma, basically. I uh, looked for a job, and, and when you go to a Ph.D. program, they brainwash you that if you don't look like me, your advisor, you're nothing. So you have to go find faculty position at a major university, which I did. I got lucky. I got a position as, as associate professor at Rutgers. So I went there. I was there for eight years. I was a fast track. I made tenure in six years. And I became department chair after seven years being there. And after eight years there, I was recruited 
by UW-Madison. So I went to UW-Madison as a faculty member. I was there for another eight years, nine years. So the first part of my career was academic. I had a big research program, lots of graduate students and postdocs and, and such. But at the same time, I did sabbaticals in Washington, D.C. That's the first time I served the president, not necessarily directly working for him, but I was working with the National Science and Technology Office, which is part of the president's executive office. So that was the first thing. I did a sabbatical there. And while I was in Washington, D.C., I was elected to be president of one professional society and the chairman of the board of another professional society. So I was handling my research, my job in the government, my and got these two new jobs. So I was juggling a lot of balls in the air. And then once I did my work in Washington, D.C., I realized I did not want to be in academia anymore. <laughs> it was a wake-up call. I realized how narrow my life was doing research. I was excelling as a, what I was doing. But by constitution, I am broad and multifaceted. But when you did the kind of research I was doing, you're just answering this tiny little question in the big world. So I said, okay, I'm going back. Sabbatical is usually two years. Went back. I said, I'm done. I still had lots of students and grant money and all of that. So I gradually wound it down, wind it down, and sort of quietly said, I want something outside academia to my close friends and, you know, network. So it turned out the Packard Foundation was looking for a head of a science and engineering. At that time, Packard Foundation was the biggest foundation in the world almost. Wellcome Fund was the other big fund in, in UK. So I get lucky and get that job, go there. Gave up my tenure, gave up my lab, gave up everything, voluntarily, on my own, gave up everything to go to the Packard Foundation. And I thought this is the job of, of a, a dream job that I want to retire into. Well, sometimes the best plans are not to be. So after about a year and a half, I was there, the dot-com bubble burst. And I'm sure you remember that, 2000. So this was the David and Bill Packard's money, which came from the HP company. The foundation was money from the, they had made from the company. So the majority of their the endowment was in one stock, HP stock. Of course. So it was a bloodbath for the foundation. We went from almost 20 plus billion dollar endowment. And in, in 2000, 20 billion was a lot. Still it, is. <laughs> still is. But now, you know, Gates Foundation and those, they're so big. But anyway, we went down to five or you know, something like that. Five. The board had to cut programs and staff and all of that. So I was sort of homeless, basically. I had to find a new home. So I cried a lot. Uh, I moped a lot, moped around, but then I realized one good thing. I want the young people who are listening to remember that. What saved me was the realization that 
you don't allow a gap of more than six months in your career, especially if you're an immigrant, woman of color, whatever. So I said, okay, stop crying and moping, get up. And I got up, dusted up myself. And at that time I was living on, on Sand Hill Road, which is the epicenter of venture capital in the world. So the, the choice was obvious. And then it dawned on me that all my life, all my life I've been doing what is the key skills in venture capital which is identify technology, identify talent, and support them. At the foundation, at the Packet Foundation, I was supporting science and technology talent, but not for profit motive. We were doing them money, giving them money, hoping that they would get the Nobel Prize. So I thought it was a natural skill set that I had. But it, it's such a far different world from nonprofits, academia and nonprofits going to for-profit. But I made the transition. And that's the kind of use of different mental models that I, that I like to impart on, on young people. Don't stick with one kind of mental model. Try to develop different skills. So anyway, the rest is history. I've been doing this for now 20 years. Excellent. So multiple threads that I want to pull on that. And I'm not sure if I want to start with the nine kids and nine cousins zoo, which just literally boggles my mind. Uh, actually, it doesn't bother. It just literally blows my mind. Or the inflection points that you had on significant decade markers, 1980 with Carter, with the Iranian hostage crisis, 2000 with the oh, web web yeah. blow up with dot com blow up. I'm going to go ahead and assume that 2020, we're just going to go ahead and call 2020 a wash because the 2020s have not been a very impressive decade by, by and large globally exactly. uh, <laughs> exactly. as well. Exactly. But let's, let's actually start uh, at the beginning with what being a part of you plus 17 other souls mm-hmm. that were living, experiencing, growing together. How did that shape you early on with being this one of many in such a tightly knit family? Yeah. So, and interestingly enough, I was in the middle, meaning the more senior ones, their favorites in terms of being trained and prepared for life to follow with their grandfather or uncle. And then the little ones who need attention because they're not able to take care of themselves. So I was in the middle. Many times I thought I didn't have a voice because it was so crowded. But I think now that I look back at it, the best thing I learned was to learn to cooperate to get my way rather than fight, cooperate to get my way and learned to not want too many things at the same time because I didn't think I had a big voice among all those kids, I would say, okay, this is what I want. I want to get a tea set for my dolls, expensive tea set, you know, with samovar and all of that. So how do I do that? So I would think about, okay, get this one. And then I would go to the next one and so forth and so on. And so that means focus and cooperation. I think I learned these two things from my upbringing and the fact that you become a people person because inundated by people all day and all. So 
So it's interesting, focus and collaboration and, and two entirely different things if you think about it. One is laser-like focus of just you, essentially, potentially performing a task or being focused on achieving a goal versus collaboration, which is making sure, and I like to use the phrase, playing friendly with others in the sandbox. So yeah. your sandbox was a very, very crowded sandbox. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a bit. So, and, and the boys or the cousins would beat us, beat our dolls or something. So it was sometimes it was traumatic. I I can only but imagine, and I I'm gonna have to really weigh in that whole concept. Uh, I come from a family where it's just myself and my older brother, and there was two yeah. of us. And sometimes it felt like there was twenty of us, not two of us, but twenty of us. And then I'm blessed to have three uh, three kiddos of my own. But you you put that factor up uh, from two or three to eighteen and. That, that's amazing. And it has to have been an amazing experience for you to have been part of that. But it taught yeah, you the I focus. I had that experience. Yeah. yeah. It taught you the focus and the collaboration. I love that. So one of the things that you had mentioned as we kind of go through your career is you made a significant pivot. You had dedicated quite a bit of your life in getting your PhD relative to all things academia and then made a huge pivot when you realized you didn't want to be laser-like focused on just chasing the answers to certain questions, but you wanted to be more broad, more diverse, and experience more. Mm-hmm. You worked with NIST. I know still stay in touch with a couple of folks at the National Institute of Science and Technology from work that I did previously. You've obviously had an impact, national governing organizations, NGOs. What has been some of the, or I guess the better question, what led to, aside from I'm focused, focused, focused. I've spent all my life to date on academia where you woke up and said, wait a minute, I'm done. I'm going to shift. I want to try this Packard Foundation piece. What, what, was, what was going through your mind at that time? The, during my sabbatical in Washington, I realized what a big world is out there in terms of intellectual stimulation and contribution to the world of science and technology. So, and I'm saying to myself, all you're doing, I was doing basic research, which is not even applicable maybe during my lifetime. And I'm saying to myself, oh, but I can do things that I can see the results in five or 10 years. Like in venture capital, you can see that in five to 10 years. Whether your company got busted or successful, you can see the results. And the culture of faculty was a little bit too much for me because they would fight about very small things. I wanted to fight about bigger things. You know, I could see that there is not women in science and technology. I wanted to change that. That's an example. I could see that U.S. at that time was at the top of the world in terms of allocating money to R&D in support of science and technology but I could see that it was, as a percent of GDP, it was creeping down. So I wanted to be part of that force that keeps the US at the top of R&D spending and, and world-class uh, science and technology. So it's that, I had no idea that I would end up at the Packard Foundation. All I knew, I did not want to be in academia. So when I opened myself, my head, to leading academia, I was ready for anything. 
if a good corporation came along, I may have joined a corporation. But this was such a dream job. I have been hustling to get grants all my academic career, and I was pretty successful. I knew all the tricks. So I said, oh, I'm going to be on that side, on the other side. They have to play trick to get money from me. So, but I know the tricks. So I won't, they can't pull the wool over my eyes. So I thought it was ideal because I knew how to do grants, get grants. So I was doing the reverse of it. So that was an easy transition. But so, I had no idea that it's going to be packet foundation. It just so happened. So you mentioned something in there, and it's also part of your bio, your bio of Women in Tech <laughs> Hall of Famer. And you have bridged the gap relative to being an acclaimed botanist and also technologist. I would love to get your thoughts for our audience relative to the difference between, I say difference, difference and similarities between science on one hand and technology on the other and how they kind of interweave uh, with each other. You know, some people like to define them as two separate things. I don't think you can easily separate them because technology depends on advances in science. And then science depends on advances in technology. And I'll give you an example. And everything is interdisciplinary, by the way. I think one of the things I didn't like about academia was this silo uh, departments and disciplines I wanted everybody to work together. So let's let's give you an example. So science created sciences like physics, biology, chemistry. So the last century was the century of uh, physics and chemistry. This century is a century of biology. You know why? Because of technology. When we, out of science, of physics, math, whatever, we created the computer sciences and and all that information technology. Information technology, computing power allowed biology to advance in leaps and bounds because the kind of calculations that a system, complex system like life sciences requires, plants, animals, microbial systems, that kind of computation is not something humans can do very efficient. So when the computing power increased, biology bloomed, blossomed, and now we can analyze massive amounts of biological information through computational biology to create things that we never dreamed of 20 years ago. So they depend on each other and they they feed on each other. Science leverages technology, technology leverages science, and they move in tandem. They're moving in tandem, and they're each lever- leveraging each other from a multidisciplinary and integration perspective. Is that fair? The and more love- disciplinary, the, more leap, the bigger the leaps are. So it's a great segue, and I wanna, I'm going to lead into the humanizing software side of the equation, because we've talked science, we've talked technology, you're talking botany, basically the study of life as it pertains to a number of plants and animals. The key question I have as it pertains to bridging the gap is where we're keeping the human side of the equation back in technology. And with the ever-increasing 
trends of changes and adaptations in science, massive, massive, massive leaps relative to the ethical permutations and issues around cloning. You really want to take it down. And then looking at, from a technology perspective, uh, generative AI with ChatGPT and some of the others that are coming out there. As we rapidly accelerate our pace on the technology side, hardware, software, whatever you want to call it, what are some of the challenges relative to making sure that the humans are still part of the equation there? Yeah, wow, that's that is the $64 million question, isn't it? <laughs> well, let me let me say something. Your program is called Humanizing Software. If I may take uh, with your permission, talk about humanizing science and technology. Absolutely. Software is just one manifestation of science and technology, isn't it? So I'm going to broaden it to beyond software. So you talk about technologies like AI. Again, I want to talk about the fact that the, the 1990 to 2000, perhaps 15 or so, there's the era of information. We had these massive data but what good does it do to pile up massive levels of data? Unless you can do some good use, or even if you're evil, if you can use it for some bad purpose, it has no advantage to have that data. So now I think from 2015 to now, and probably for the next 10, 15 years, is gonna be the era of knowledge. We are creating knowledge from that data. So what are we doing? And that's AI. That's what AI is enabling us to do, analyzing massive, massive uh, amounts of data, especially with quantum computing. I mean, things are so rapid that it's almost hard for any of us to fathom it. Unless you are a deep AI person, it's hard for most of us to fathom what's going on. Now, in terms of AI, I want to talk AI, but I want to also talk about a biological version of AI, meaning two areas where people are ambivalent about. Do we want more of it or less of it? How do we do it? Is GMOs. In life, GMOs are sort of like, oh, I can't eat GMOs. I can't. I mean, they're dangerous. But why is it? Is because they're new. We don't quite understand them. And we don't know where they're taking us. And while you can see an amazing amount of good come out of these things, in the case of GMO, feeding the poor, feeding the world, in the case of AI, coming up with new drugs for cancer that are far more effective and precise, precision medicine. AI enables precision medicine, personalized medicine, in a way that we couldn't do before. So, so here's the good part of all of these. But then what if the evil people use it for, for bad purposes? So I am comfortable with GMOs. I don't mind eating GMO products because I understand them. And after 30 years of growing corn and soybean that are GMO, by the way, 90% of what corn, the tortilla chips we eat, they're GMOs. And none of us have died, right? So I, eat, I, I don't have fear of GMO. 
at this stage, I do have some opinions about AI, which are not really informed because I'm not a deep AI person, but I have fears also. So my uninformed, my understanding of AI is that it offers tremendous benefits. And I give you at least some life sciences uh, example. You can talk to some deep AI person to talk about uh, other things. So I think I think the big umbrella I want to give to AI is that it enables us to to think at, or understand systems level, which is very hard for humans to comprehend because we we know how to look at thin, you know thinly sliced pieces of life, but <coughs> systems are difficult. So like systems biology is the most important thing I can think of right now in terms of advances, but yet it's hard to do unless you put AI behind it. So for solving system level problems, AI is great. The other thing that I think I am not afraid of AI and I like AI or chat GTP is for objective questions quantitative objective. There's no danger in that, you know? Like, help me solve this calculus problem. What is the reaction, chemical reaction, if I take these two drugs together? These are objective, quantitative uh, questions. The subjective questions with AI that I, I am afraid of. If you allow AI to do subjective answering, it builds on that. And who knows if the answer is right, wrong? I don't know. So systemic, objective, excellent use. When you're looking at subjective, can go a variety of different directions, perhaps introduce different biases, opinions, behaviors. That's where the danger lies. And the potential intersect of that is having humans continue to be part of the equation. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, when you listen to, I love Elon Musk, by the way, our own Austinite superstar. I love him because I think he is Da Vinci, Newton, and Edison all wrapped in one person. So how could you not love him? So I listen to him, I read what he says, what he does. You know what he says? He says, well, let's slow down a little bit until we understand what we are doing because the AI could surpass human uh, abilities and then we can't stop it. So I pay attention to what Elon says. I, like I said, I, I have no expertise, so I choose who to listen to. I know how good AI is in terms of drug discovery, in terms of personal nutrition, climate science, all of this, these are great things, but but I also listen to Elon Musk. Well, listening to folks, whether they are Bill Gates or Elon Musk or national directors of whichever associated NGO or other different scientific or technology or other organizations, obviously are great sources across the board. And I think being able to have as diverse of an understanding of viewpoints of different folks that have different viewpoints that allow each of us to form up our own opinions Mm -hmm. um, continues to be extremely important for that. And that's 
from a tailwind perspective, that is one of the things that we try and build in across the board with who we are and how we work with folks is putting in and keeping the relationship side uh, of the equation. I know that you and I were introduced through mutual friends. That is such an important piece relative to the relational aspect of smart person A, smart person B, the intersect of how they come together and what they're able to do or create or experience or give to others is, I think, something that's an important part of that human dynamic that we continue to try and explore. Mm -hmm. So I want to touch base on an area, but before I do so, I, I realized that we didn't touch on an area that you certainly wanted to cover, which was um, why or what brought you to Austin? So let's have that conversation very quickly. <laughs> do, you want a, do you want a real story? I absolutely want the real story, most That's certainly. When, when we last saw you landing, it was in a what, pea soup night at San, SFO, San Francisco Airport. So yeah. that's San Francisco, then D.C. Now, where does Austin fit into the equation? Well, via New Jersey and Madison, Wisconsin, I did a lot of different, my career took me different places, but I've always been in love with the Bay Area. And I still love it because my positions are there and work with colleagues back there, uh, up there. So I have been, after forever being in the Bay Area, I have been thinking about moving away from San Francisco. Not necessarily the Bay Area, but San Francisco was becoming a little bit of problematic lifestyle. As you were walking to your financial district office, you were walking through things that... It just, I don't want to talk about them. You guys all know about it. So I've been thinking about leaving San Francisco. And quite frankly, the taxes were just a big burden. So I looked at a number of low tax states, Nevada, Florida, Georgia, you know, the typical places that people are moving to. Austin, I mean, Texas was there because of their taxes, but it never occurred to me that I would go to Austin because I've never been to Austin. So it wasn't on the forefront. So I'm reading this book called Green Light by Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> and I just loved him and loved the book. I don't know him. I've never met him. I've seen some of his movies. I know he's a great actor. But when I read that book, it is the most beautiful folk philosophy book. It has become my to-go gift for my friends. When I need to give a gift, that's what I give to friends. So I was reading this book, and I'm saying, oh, Austin, Texas. He's in Austin. If even 10% of Austin is like him, I want to go to Austin. And so that's how I decided to go to Austin, Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> so I know that I've got, I have not yet. Reason or a good reason? I don't know. That, that is an excellent reason. And obviously I'm a big fan of his, not only because of my alma mater, University of Texas, and he's the minister of culture uh, for UT. Yeah, but, uh, minister of culture. But I do think uh, he and I share a lot of similar philosophies relative to thoughts of people coming together rather than fighting apart and the right. ability to have people, again, be at the centerpiece of wanting to work together and make things happen. 
And that that brings me up. I'm going to circle back around because I wanted to get the I wanted to get your journey to Austin, which is why you're now here with us here in the great state of Texas. But then circle back around on the humanizing software. We've got three words that are the subtitle of our live cast. And as we get close to our time together, I wanted to make sure that we have the opportunity to talk about these because you've talked about science and technology. Well, our subtitle is people-driven tech. I bet that you're probably going to say people-driven science and tech, and that's perfectly good. But when I say people-driven tech, what comes to your mind, Shayla? Lots of things. But let me sort of distill them because we don't have time forever here. The way I think about things is, okay, who makes it? Who produces it? Who uses it? And who leverages it? So all these, these are all humans, right? That participate. The, the creators come up with these discoveries or inventions. The producers like Apple and Tesla make these great products that we all love to have and use. And so users are almost all of us. Anybody in the world is the user. And then those who are the leveragers. When somebody like Lee Hood at University of Washington in Seattle uses computational biology to look at systems biology, he is leveraging software, computational biology, to open up biology, make us create things that we couldn't do before. So to me, people who leverage technology are just as important as those who create it. And they're all humans. And one overarching thing, when I think about people-driven S&T, is diversity. Diversity, I don't mean just by color, race, gender. Diversity of thought. People who come from different experiences and think differently, you know? Steve Jobs' motto was think differently, wasn't it? And so I love to look at the overarching humanness, humanity on top of these four pillars. And then at the bottom, what do you want to see dripping from this this halo and the four columns? And you have a bowl at the bottom that you want to collect from, improving human condition. That's what I want to see. Improving the human condition, but a fantastic way to encapsulate not only the humanizing software or to borrow your new phrase. And we'll have to talk to the producers of the show about we'll have to rename this one humanizing science and technology with software. So we can certainly do that. But I love this concept of improving the human condition. If there was one phrase or thought, and I love the fact that you talk to the younger folks that might be listening in now or in the future, because digital is forever. If there's one word of advice that you could provide to your younger self or to the folks that are listening in who might be earlier on in their career and still making these decisions, what phrase or words would you share with them, Shayla? A lot of them, but I'll give you one. Who you know is more important than what you know than... And then there's a second part. Who knows you is more important than who you know. I like that. (laughs) So it's all about the, and this gets back to my favorite thing, which is the relationships. Being able to have genuine human condition associated with 
It's not just Zayla and Andrew having a conversation on a live cast. It's yeah. those folks that we have in our universe, those folks that we have as part of our ecosystem that we're able to share, to bring together, to have this one plus one equals three thought collaboration across the world. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of important yeah. associated with that? Yeah, this is all about human connections and, and the one plus one equal three. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know we've got a couple of comments. That I'm going to see if we can't try and address relative to this about, gosh, lots of different comments that have come in. Welcome to Texas from some folks. And the impact that we see of AI and software having to immigrants today versus 20 years ago. Let's see if we can't cover that one off before the end of the show. Do you have any thoughts or perspective, especially from your Persian background, about what we look like in 2023 versus 2003 with AI and software and the impact on immigration to and from the United States? I think when I look at myself as an immigrant 20 years ago, I was unfairly deported, ordered deported. I never actually was deported, but struggled with deportation notices without me doing anything. To today, when I see the immigrants having voices, being participating in a lot of things. So things have improved tremendously. And I'm proud of what we have accomplished. But that is not to say that we are problem free. So we need to continue to, to pay attention to every single human being. I cannot emphasize it more. So as an immigrant, I want to see everybody has a fair shot at what they want to be. And I don't know how AI would help this, but we humans can do something about it. I think I'll add to that. And Ty, thank you again for the question. I think the, the impact becomes one of those where technology can improve the human condition, as Zayla had shared with us earlier on. And when we're able to leverage the technology, when we're able to leverage the science, when we're able to leverage the software, to enable us to remove barriers, to prevent systems that are designed to either extend out a process. Jayla shared about her possibly being deported numerous times, 40 years ago, came this close, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. uh, when we have the capability of accelerating the process to let in those folks who have a real and lasting and positive impact and allow them to make this impact and shorten the time, the review process, the bureaucracy, the issues and barriers that are associated with that, I think it only provides a better place for all of us relative to accelerating and automating what is a bureaucratic, long, and in many cases, painful process, and bringing the humans back into allowing immigration to happen the way it's supposed to be in a free and open way. So, my generalized take on that. Any last comments or thoughts on that, Jayla? No, I think actually I love what you said and I, I'm learning from you right now what AI could be applied to. And I'm, I would do some more thinking about it. So next time I'm asked this question, I would respond more intelligently. Well, it, it's great. And I certainly appreciate you joining us today. We've got some exciting things that we're going to be continuing to talk about, and I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation and invite those who have asked questions. Ozzy, I see your question about AI and sentiment analysis. We're going to have to capture that one along on this. Are you against AI doing sentiment analysis? 
That is one that I don't believe we're going to tackle today, but I think it's one that I would love to have the conversation continue, not only on LinkedIn, but in our future conversations as well. Something that is very, very important and that we'll be continuing to discuss on future future versions and future livecasts on our humanizing software. But as we close out today, I first wanted to say, Zayla, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your journey for coming over across and respecting your Persian background and now being a U.S. citizen and what you've added, not only from a nonprofit perspective and an academia perspective, but now as a women leader in science and technology and empowering others to do and follow that similar path. So thank you so much for all that you've been able to do. Well, thank you for having me. I look forward to meeting you in person. Absolutely as well. And as we close off today's episode, again, engage with us, continue these awesome conversations and questions, not only on our YouTube channel on humanizing software, but reach out to us directly on LinkedIn. Follow us on at tailwindsw.com. So as we wrap up today, again, thank you for listening. We certainly appreciate that. And we wish everyone a very, very good afternoon, a good morning, and that good afternoon and a good evening. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Humanizing Software with Andrew Tall. Make sure you subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.